0: This is Talking Soundtracks with Jason Jury on the Cinematic Sound Radio
1: Network. Hello again, my name is Jason Drury and welcome once again to Talking Soundtracks. In June 2021 for Talking Soundtracks, I had the great pleasure of talking to the author of the acclaimed book, Music by Max Steiner, The Epic Life of Hollywood's Most Influential Composer. Four times Emmy-nominated journalist, writer, and producer of over 200 documentaries about music and cinema, Stephen C. Smith, via Zoom at his home in Southern California. In part one of his two-part edition, we talked about how the book came about and began to delve into the musical career of Max Steiner. In part two, our talk includes Steiner's music for the films of Humphrey Bogart and Errol Flynn, his friendship with Victor Young, and at the twilight of his career, an unexpected hit in the pop charts, as well as playing, as in part one, some more of the musical music of one of the pioneers of the film music genre. Now Max Steiner started his career at RKO and on the other side of town there was a certain Eric Wolfgang Korngold at Warner Brothers and these two reading your book started to have a kind of friendly rivalry. How much of a rivalry did
2: Steiner have with Eric Korngold? yes indeed but yes corngold came to uh, warner brothers in 1934 and he established himself with his arrangement of mendelssohn's music of a midsummer night's dream that was released in 35 and that same year Korn gold wrote the great score for Captain Blood, and then from then on, he was just this master of adventure and, and romantic period scoring. Max joined him at Warner Brothers a few years later. Max became a staff composer at Warner's in 37. And from then on, they had, if it was a rivalry, the friendliest of rivalries. And I think it was the kind of rivalry that songwriters have with each other and that maybe actors have in that they upped each other's game. They set different kinds of standards. No one surpasses Corngold when it comes to writing Adventures of Robin Hood or The Seahawk. Steiner, however, is a more versatile composer. You wouldn't put Corngold on a lot of the films that Max could score. And that is no denigration of Corngold. It's just saying that different people have different strengths. So Max had a broader range while Korngold was just the master of writing that kind of Richard Strauss big film score, although Max himself did a very, very fine one, one of the best for The Adventures of Don Juan in 1948. Mm. That was one of his own favorites of his scores, and I I think it's such a joyous, life-loving, ebullient work written when Max was 60. It shows that Max could work in that genre as well. But returning to your question about the relationship between Max and Korngold, Max's wife Louise said that they were friends And as you can imagine, Max being competitive, Max always wanting to get the best work on the best movies, like all composers do, that if he heard that he wasn't getting Robin Hood, that that was going to Korngold, that would hurt his feelings. Now, none of us would argue that (laughs) I I think we would all agree it worked out perfectly with, with Korngold writing one of the greatest scores of all time but I I can understand Max wanting to do that movie. So that was the only area where I would say there'd be any kind of friction, and none of that was directed by Max toward Korngold. It was simply his own desire to always work on great movies. And also at that time, pre-Gone with the Wind, Max did get a number of A movies, including a Best Picture winner, The Life of Emile Zola, but Warners would often put him on gangster movies, prison break movies, genres he didn't really care for, Jack Warner was quite shrewd, and he knew that Max could elevate a B-movie into feeling like an A-movie. And that was something that Max did to the very end of his time at Warner's as a staff composer in 1953. In fact, near the end, he was more often put on lesser films because Jack Warner felt that they needed Steiner's help to make them better movies. But there's a charming story who knows if it's true it probably isn't but it is emotionally true there's a charming story about corngold and steiner and it supposedly happened at warner brothers in the mid-40s shortly before eric wolfgang Korngold left hollywood left america to return to for time to europe after the war and supposedly max and Korngold ran into each other and max said you know eric i've been listening to your latest scores and they don't really seem to have the same kind of excitement and snap that they used to have, whereas I think my music's actually getting better. How do you explain this? To which Korngold supposedly said, well, Max, that's easy. You've been stealing from me, and I've been stealing from you. So it's too good to be true, but I think that absolutely nails the kind of joking, playful relationship they probably had with each other. There's a fun story that the producer, Henry Blankey, told. He was a very prolific producer of films like treasure of the Sierra Madre. And most of the great movies at Warner's that weren't produced by Hal Wallace or Jerry Wald were made by Henry Blanke. And I found in in his archives, Henry Blanke told a great story that one day Gold opened his office door, listening to some other music coming from somewhere. And he said, I wish people would stop stealing from me. Why don't they steal from the person I steal from, Richard Strauss? (laughs) So I think it's almost like at times I, I picture the Warner Brothers lot being like those Bugs Bunny cartoons, or at least the animators behind them. There's a sense of wisecracking, cynicism, and we're all in this together. A sense of we're doing the impossible, and yet somehow we're having fun at the same time. A good sense of camaraderie, but a bit of banter between them and... A lot of banter. And, and, And I'd love to say that musicians, to a person, really liked or loved Max. Herman sometimes unfortunately could be verbally abusive of an orchestra and I don't think he intended it to be targeted to people but he just had a a real anger within him sometimes and Max was not like that he could get upset at a recording session but it was at himself it was like why doesn't this sound like I meant it to and the great thing about Warner Brothers and a sign of how much they believed in him and how much uh, they supported him, was that, yes, they made him write a score day and night, but when it got to the recording session, he could spend a few hours reorchestrating, moving the orchestra around, moving the mics around, because Jack Warner knew how critical that music would be to the success of the film. And this was something I didn't know until I wrote the book, and this is kind of crazy, Jack Warner insisted that Max write a full score before a film was previewed, instead of using temp tracks, because he knew how much Steiner's music would help the film. So Max didn't just have to have his music done by the time of locking the film, he was expected to have it done before they previewed it. And if they recut the film afterwards, which was usually the case, I mean, movies always get recut for pacing or some reason, they would often just try to cut it without going back to the scoring sessions, which could be quite costly. But it's a sign of how much Warner Brothers believed in him and supported him, that they wanted the movie seen for the first time with him in it. And I found these remarkable memos of saying things like, this is kind of made up, but I think this is an accurate one. Preview, The Big Sleep, Warner Hollywood Theater, 8.30 p.m., meeting for dinner, 6 p.m., attendees, Jack Warner, Howard Hawks, Humphrey Bogart, Lauren Bacall, Max Steiner, and I just thought, oh my goodness, can you imagine sitting at dinner with these people and then going to the preview of the big sleep? Oh
1: Oh, boy. I'm very lucky to have a boss by the name of Jack L. Warner, who is probably the greatest friend of music of anybody in the picture business. I asked him one day, I says, Boss, how much music do you want in this picture? And he says, Max, for me, you can start on the first frame and finish at the end. Another one of the great relationships, I think, in his film canon was with Humphrey Bogart, particularly for films like Casablanca, The Treacherous Sierra Murder, and The Big Sleep. How important was Stardust's music to making the career of Humphrey Bogart?
2: Well, uh, I think Bogart made himself a star on his own because the Maltese Falcon and High Sierra were the first big turning points where, where Warner Brothers had faith in him, and Max did not score those. But I think that in solidifying Bogart's image as a romantic hero with Casablanca, Max unquestionably plays a role in that. And I was very fortunate as a biographer in that the three best-known Max Steiner movies, King Kong, Casablanca, and Gone with the Wind, all have tremendously dramatic creation stories. You know, King Kong and Gone with the Wind, as we've discussed, were created under the greatest pressure imaginable. I mean, metaphorically and almost literally, the roof was falling in on the studios while those were being done. And Casablanca has its own share of drama uh, because Max hated the song as time goes by. And, and I'll let that sink in for a moment while everyone asks themselves, how could any sane person hate the song As Time Goes By? The song As Time Goes By was not written for Casablanca. It was written for a very short-lived Broadway show in the 1930s by the composer Herman Hupfeld. And the song, although recorded by Rudy Valley, was pretty much forgotten after that musical came out and that record was made. The play that Casablanca is based on, it mentions the song as time goes by because one of the playwrights of that play loved that song, a forgotten song. Well, Hal Wallace, the producer of the film Casablanca, very shrewdly thought it would be a perfect song for the movie. It was a good idea to use that song normally, Max was absolutely fine with incorporating pop music melodies and other themes into his scores. He did it brilliantly in, in Gone with the Wind. I mean, when he had to use a lot of Stephen Foster or, or Marshall music, he found ways to make it work and sound like his own music. Or if Warner's had a hit song for a movie that they wanted to promote, he was almost always completely on board. The reason he did not want to use the song as time goes by is that he loved. The movie so much. And his third wife, whom he dearly loved, Louise, the mother of his only son, had just walked out on him, literally walked out and moved to New York. And he was devastated. And he felt like Rick Blaine in the movie, the Humphrey Bogart character. He was brokenhearted and trying to cover it up with a kind of cynical sense of humor. And he was, as many composers do, just like moviegoers, he, he fell in love with Ilsa Lund. You know, he fell in love with the Ingrid Bergman character as, a, as an artist. I don't mean that he had any personal attachment to Ingrid Bergman, but he just fell into that movie so completely. And he had just written a beautiful and commercially successful theme for now Voyager. It became a song called It Can't Be Wrong for Betty Davis. So bottom line, Max wanted to write his own love theme for Casablanca and Hal Wallace said, Max, you've got to use it, time goes by. And Max argued for once and Hal Wallace who who was a very cool customer and could really uh, intimidate most people with a glance just just said to Max, Max, you're using it. (laughs) Discussion over. And Max also thought that the song As Time Goes By rhythmically didn't sound like a love theme because the original sheet music, and you can hear it this way in the movie sometimes, it's ta-ta, 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 Well, Max, with his wonderful sense of Viennese rhythm and waltz, he didn't think of that as a romantic rhythm. And Hugo Friedhofer, who fortunately for us was his orchestrator, said, Max, don't think of it as ta-ta, ta-ta, ta-ta. Think da-da, da-da. And and I do believe that Hugo, in this case, knowing Max and, and knowing music, did help him get out of his and I I suspect part of that was Max's just his frustration that he had to use this song he didn't like and once Max reimagined that music in that kind of lyrical fashion he writes such heartbreaking gorgeous variations on "As time goes by and the underscore that I as I say often it not only sounds like he loved the song it sounds like he wrote the song and I tell you I'm 56 years old I've seen Casablanca most of my life and whenever It's that last scene in Paris or the end of the movie, and you hear that last, those last variations of as time goes by, I just choke up. Steven Spielberg said once, Max Steiner, and I'm paraphrasing, but he said something like, it's Max Steiner who, when that tear is just about to come out of your eye, makes it roll down your cheek. And I think that's a great description.
1: Wonderful strings part in that section. The score at the end. You see it in clips over time.
2: It really still it still gets to you every time you hear it. It is. And, and Max, it's interesting, he didn't mention Casablanca once in his, in his unpublished autobiography. And that is kind of a hodgepodge of, you can tell it's it's not a finished book, but I don't think he would have mentioned it because it was a sore spot for him. He acknowledged that it was successful. He loved the movie. He got an Oscar nomination for it, but he never got over the fact that he had to use as time goes by. Now, to his credit and it's telling of, of his sense of humor, if you look on the last page of the Casablanca score, He has a wonderful joke. On the last page, he usually writes something nice to Hugo Friedhofer, who is, like him, stayed up for the last week, night and day, trying to finish the movie on time. And Max writes on the last page of Casablanca's score, Dear Hugo, I am very pleased with you. Thank you very much. Yours, Herman Hupfeld, (laughs) the composer of his time goes by. So (laughs) at least he can make a joke out of it.
1: Now, you mentioned Adventures of Don Juan, which is, to me, one of my favourite Steiner scores. And I think I've ever seen it on a Sunday afternoon on BBC One in the UK. And I've actually falling in love of the music of that film. In the 80s, it even appeared in Steven Spielberg's The Goonies. it's yes. <laughs> And it was great to hear it again. Steiner scored a number of films starring Errol Flynn. Which, in your opinion, from your research, stood out for you?
2: My favorite and Max's would be The Adventures of Don Juan. Max loved scoring that film. And that was going to be a Corn Gold film because that movie had been in development since The Adventures of Robin Hood in 1938. And this is a film, Don Juan, that wasn't released until 1948. And there are all sorts of reasons it was it didn't get released for a decade. They were working on the script, the war happened, other projects came along. Unfortunately, by the time the film was made, Errol Flynn was already beginning his state of internal collapse. He was drinking, he was doing, I I can't recall if he was using drugs yet, but he was on the slide downward and he was not well during the making of the film. And I went through the production reports and confirmed that the, the set was closed for many, many days and the director Vincent Sherman wrote vividly about all of the problems he had about Flynn not even being able to stand up on some days. And you will see scenes that supposedly were blocked, where Don Juan is listening to people talk while they walk around him. And originally, the scenes were supposed to be the other way around, where Don Juan was walking and the people were sitting. So unfortunately, Flynn just didn't have the same vitality and it ended up being a tremendously expensive film. After this film, the the Flynn films were on much tighter, smaller budgets because he had sadly become an unreliable person. Well, that made the music all the more important. And Max, who was something of a Don Juan in real life, I mean, he'd been a romantic all his life and, and had a colorful series of romances in his early life. I think that at 60, with health issues, with tons of financial problems, which we haven't even talked about, but we can set aside, with tons of, of problems in the real world, the chance to be Don Juan, to go into the mind of Errol Flynn as Don Juan, so inspired him and he loved Spanish music and he loved that Spanish and Latin dance forms. So he was really invigorated. I mean, he was already writing brilliant scores around this time. This is the time of Treasure of the Sierra Madre and the Benjani and Belinda and Key Largo, but he really excelled with Don Juan. Jack Warner was absolutely bowled over by the impact that the score had on the film, so much so that when Vincent Sherman, the director, and the film's producer, Jerry Wald, watched a preview, they wrote a lengthy letter to Jack Warner saying, Jack, the film is scored practically wall to wall. We've got to take out some of the music. It's too much, and then they listed, all these points where they wanted the music either dipped down or taken out. Well, I went through the list and Jack Warner ignored every single note. And I think the movie works. I don't think films always need music, but I think this is a case where having all that music really does help the film. And Max wanted to let the final big sword fight with the famous leap down the stairs, not done by Errol Flynn by a stuntman, but the most athletic final sword fight with the main villain, he wanted that to be unscored. And after the preview, with all that music, the only note Jack Warner had was, I want you to score that final sword fight. (laughs) So it wasn't taking out the music, it was adding more. And Max thought that was not a good choice, but of course he did what the boss ordered. And it was almost like he was loved too much. So that's a sign of how important he was. And yes, it is true. He scored a number of Errol Flynn films. And sometimes that's just availability. But it's also that just as Flynn proved himself to be a surprisingly successful star of Westerns, Max, an Austrian, proved himself a surprisingly successful composer of Americana and Westerns. And one of his most beautiful scores is not for a Western, but it's certainly Americana, The Adventures of Mark Twain. And I think that score is a real masterpiece that should be played every 4th of July. Max did a beautiful concert suite of it. It's about 10 minutes long. And it's beautiful, beautiful, beautiful Americana. And in that same way, they sometimes say that outsiders to a country can see it better, you know, like the British film director working in America or vice versa. I think that Max, with his romanticized view of America and the, and the lore of the American West, could write those great Western scores that he did for films like The Searchers for Dodge City. Not a great Western, but a great score. And so I think once Jack Warner saw how well Max worked in that genre and that Flynn worked well in that genre, they were often paired together because it worked.
1: i had to explain to my partner mandy that this great composer of westerns was to meet and tomkin he actually came from russia it took some explaining. <laughs> and,
2: you know, it, it shouldn't really be surprising because the American West was settled by immigrants from yeah. other places, from other countries. So, you know, in a way, it's I, not as irrational as it seems. Yeah,
1: I also have to explain about Ennio Morricone, but that's another story. Now, now one of his other musical friends at the time was Victor Young. And I used to uh, play, play a lot of cars together, I noticed in the book. How did Young's sudden death affect Steiner?
2: Victor Young's death in 1957 was something that really deeply hurt Max because Victor Young was his closest friend. Max was such a warm and giving person that he was very, very friendly with lots of people, but he only probably let a few people really closely inside. Of the composers in Hollywood, Victor Young was that person. They would gamble all night. (laughs) They would tell stories and play practical jokes on each other. I mean, they were almost like kids sometimes together. So they were very close, certainly a mutual admiration society. And unfortunately, they had had not a falling out exactly, but Max had hit hard times in the 1950s. He was laid off by Warner Brothers when he turned 65 because he was too expensive and television was really cutting into the success of movies for a while. His contract wasn't renewed. You can imagine when you're 65 years old and he was losing his eyesight, something he tried to conceal, but people knew. And Hollywood then just like now is a town of gossip. And hey, did you hear about this? So that I have no doubt other composers were saying, hey, don't hire Max Steiner. He, he can't even see anymore. So Max was facing a lot of headwind getting good jobs after he left Warner Brothers. He loved Victor Young dearly. But when David O. Selznick hired Victor Young to work on a television program with him and won an Emmy, Max, who owed a fortune to the IRS and many, many other people by then and was in desperate financial debt. He went through just a moment of hurt and jealousy that Victor Young was working on that. And I I don't know that he ever said anything to Victor. They just didn't talk for a little while. Well, that's when Victor Young died. And Max loved him so much that the way he kind of tried to have a closure to their friendship and maybe even just get over his guilt over a moment's jealousy was that. Victor Young had just started to score a film. He'd written a song for it called China Gate, a Sam Fuller film. He'd written a song and sketched out just a couple of themes. Max and someone else wrote the complete score and Max took no money for it and he had the money go to Victor Young's widow. And the credit on the film, which I'm sure Max wrote, it's the most, maybe the most unusual music credit you will ever see. I believe it says, music by Victor Young, extended by his old friend, Max Steiner.
1: Yeah, a composer who died way too young, if you pardon the pun. He was at the peak of his powers when he was taken for
2: us way too soon. And a sign of how Max felt about him was that in that unpublished autobiography, at the end... Max tries to be funny at the end of the book. You can't help but see that he's he's hurting a little bit. He's alone. He's lost his eyesight. He's just gone through a, an unimaginable personal tragedy that I talk about in the book and just don't talk about in interviews. But he was really down. And I think he wrote that autobiography, dictated it because he couldn't see to try to get out of his depression. There, and so there's kind of a sense of melancholy, even running through some of the jokes. And near the end of the book, really the last pages, I think he says, I'm thinking of having a sign at Forest Lawn, a famous uh, cemetery out here, a sign put up that says coming attraction, Max Steiner. And then in a more poignant line, he says, I've asked my wife, my little mama, to put in a pack of cards with me in case I see Victor Young.
1: Also in the mid-50s, Steiner struck gold with a film which you mentioned earlier, scoring one of the greatest Western films of all time, The Searchers, directed by John and starring John Wayne and uh, Jeffrey Hunter. From your research for your book, how did Steiner get
2: involved in working on The Searchers? Yeah, the, The Searchers is, for me, the last masterpiece of a score that Max Steiner wrote. He scored it in 1955, which would make him 67 years old and he had barely worked for a year and he didn't work for a year after. And the reason he got the searchers was because it was produced by Marion C. Cooper, his old friend who produced King Kong. Earlier, Cooper had produced the film This Is Cinerama that really introduced the okay. widescreen process mm-hmm. of the 50s. And Max did it sort of under the table for no money as oh. a favor to Cooper because he, he was fully committed to Warner Brothers, but he just couldn't let his friend down. So he wrote what music he had time to do and he oversaw and edited all the other music written by the other composers that he was hiring. So he, he ran it like a musical director and took no money for it, which is just, again, it shows his generosity and, if I may say, kind of his foolishness, given how much money he owed at the time, because that movie was one of the most successful films of its time. But that's Max. He did it for a friend. Well, Cooper returned the favor. A few years later, Cooper produced the film The Searchers, which we rightly think of as a John Ford Western. And you would think that John Ford might want to work with Steiner because Steiner had scored two earlier John Ford films, The Informer, which won both Ford and Steiner an Oscar, and a wonderful film less known now called The Lost Patrol. But Ford's feelings about film music were ambivalent, let's say. He, He liked folk themes, and sometimes he liked orchestral scoring, and Ford absolutely loved the score for The Informer which is a very orchestral score. But sometimes he didn't want an orchestral big score for his films. And from what we know, Ford felt that Steiner's score for The Searchers was, let's put it this way, it was bigger than the music that Ford heard in his imagination. To, I think, you and me, Jason and many others, it's perfect for the movie. I mean, that movie is an epic and the score is perfectly calibrated, I think, for the film. It's intimate at times. Max does an amazing job incorporating several real-life, actual folk songs of the period, and they're almost telling us in code a whole subtext of the story that's there through the songs that are being chose while he's writing brilliant original themes of his own. I think it's a masterpiece of a score. Ford was not pleased with it, and so the experience ended on a sour note for Max in that some of the music wasn't used, which happens on almost every film. He was hurt. Like I said, he was was an overly sensitive person if he felt people didn't like what he was doing. And Cooper was pleased with it, but Ford was a little more ambivalent about it. And when Max wrote that unpublished autobiography, he makes a fleeting reference to the Marion C. Cooper Western, The Searchers. He doesn't even (laughs) mention John Ford. Well, the nice thing is there is a a nice coda to this in that when Max was retired, he simply really didn't have the energy or the eyesight or the, the ability anymore to write scores in his late 70s, shortly before his death, there was a music society formed to celebrate him and it had members from around the world and it was a wonderful thing he loved it and they had gatherings in his home and the head of that group enlisted the people that steiner had worked with from jack warner to fred astaire to at least sign on as members and sometimes write things about max that were published and it's really lovely so he got a lot of late in life testimonials from those people among them betty davis who accepted something like an honorary chairwoman or vice president of it or something But she wrote, he often made our acting better, which, you know, says a lot for coming from Betty Davis. But what is nice is that you never really know, of course, if the things that are submitted as people's writing, if they really wrote it. But there's one from John Ford that I absolutely believe Ford wrote because it's rather melancholy. And he says many nice things about Max. And he says how much he loved the score for The Informer. And again, you'll forgive me if my book isn't in front of me. I'm gonna paraphrase this, but I know that the last word is correct. He'll say, there isn't music like that today now. SAD in capital letters. And that sounds very much like Ford speaking. And I think Ford realized looking back how much Max Steiner had contributed to film.
1: So Fred Steiner left Warner Bros. at the age of 65. What's the reason behind him
2: leaving Warner Bros? He was 65. And the good news is he learned within a year that it wasn't that Jack Warner didn't want to work with him. It was that Jack Warner didn't want to pay him what was probably the highest salary for a film composer on staff. Because, And so what Warner did was, just what people do now, he hired Steiner by the picture. And the number was a little low at first, but it crept up because Max you know, wrote terrific scores. And Warner fell in love again with that Max Steiner sound. And of course, stereo comes along and the scores sound even better in the mid 50s. And the great, great irony of Max's life, the, the thing that saved him was that he had an ambition from youth to be a successful songwriter. And you can only imagine working with Gershwin and Irving Berlin and Jerome Kern and being the facilitator, the conductor and orchestrator of the greatest American songs, arguably of the 20th century, or at least of the first half of the 20th century. Max wanted to be a great songwriter. He also wanted a hit for the money because he spent so much more than he made And that's saying something because he made the equivalent of millions and he spent even more. He just was a terrible money manager and he hired bad money managers. He was far from alone in this. And boy, once you're in trouble with the government and taxes, it just grows like a tornado. So there was an almost unimaginable mountain of debt that he faced by the age of 70 that you would think he could never get out from under. Well, at age 71, he's asked to score as a freelancer this movie, A Summer Place. And the film has two different couples, two different romantic couples, an older one and then teenagers. And for the film, Max writes this kind of pastiche of 50s pop rock ballad that became a theme from Summer Place with this famous triplet uh, figure. Well, Max, for once, was not trying to write a hit song. And apparently he wrote this in minutes, which I believe. He he started with the triplet figure that's in everything like Blueberry Hill to, you know, all those other songs. And then being a Max Steiner, he probably just, Wrote those simple top notes over it. That's the kind of dreamy cloud-like melody over it, and it was recorded by what they used to call an easy listening conductor, uh, Percy Faith, in an arrangement that is essentially identical to the one that's in the film. And at first, nothing happened because the movie hadn't come out yet. The record came out. The movie was a huge hit. People bought the record. It became one of the best selling records of the second half of the 20th century. And Billboard magazine listed it as the most successful rock instrumental of the early rock and roll era. It made millions. It won the Grammy for record of the year over records by Elvis Sinatra, Ella Fitzgerald and Ray Charles. It was just the the biggest thing, and it made Max so much money that even he was financially secure and well off for the rest of his life. I I love that, that at age 71, this Austrian symphonic composer accidentally writes the hit he's needed his whole life, gets himself out of financial jail, if you will, achieves the seemingly impossible, and, and secures his future.
1: Aside from looking for that elusive hit singer, which he finally achieved, he was also, in a way, the pioneer of the film music concert. But his attempt at this did not work out so well due to a certain
2: Mr. Frank Sinatra. Is that correct? If Max had lived a little longer into the age of, of film music being performed in concert suites at the Hollywood Bowl and, well, anywhere around the world, I think he would have really enjoyed that. He died thinking that film music did not belong in the concert hall simply because it had not been successful there often, and also because one of the most bitter and unhappy experiences he ever had in his professional life was his only real symphonic concert in America after he was famous. When the New York Philharmonic needed money in the summer, they had uh, their equivalent of the Hollywood Bowl was the uh, New York Philharmonic at Lewison Stadium. And these were big summer concerts, and they were more pop-like. And it's a sort of cynical but true thing that people in the symphonic world had nothing but contempt for people in the film world, unless they might be able to bring in some money for them. So in 1943, Max was asked to conduct a summer concert at Lewiston Stadium because they needed money and they thought that he was well-known enough to draw a crowd. And Max was so excited because he saw this as what he hoped would happen would be John Williams and the Boston Pops decades later. He saw a life where he might travel conducting orchestras, playing suites of his music, playing other people's music. He wanted to play suites of music by Alfred Newman and others. And he was absolutely right that this would be a valid thing that that audiences would enjoy it ended in an absolute disaster. There was a good idea that they were going to have a popular singer on the program and people like Dinah Shore and others were talked about. Well, they ultimately chose Frank Sinatra, who was at the height of his teeny bopper, Bobby Soxer fame of 1943. He was not yet the great Frank Sinatra. He was someone that the critics often regarded with contempt. Some said he had a thin voice and he'd really just emerged from the Tommy Dorsey Orchestra. But basically he was like a beetle there. He went to a concert and girls screamed through the entire set and you couldn't hear a thing. So what was going to be a Max Steiner concert became a Frank Sinatra concert with this guy on the podium named Max Steiner conducting and Sinatra was very, very late to the only rehearsal. The New York Philharmonic would only have one short rehearsal. It was a blazing summer day. Max was sick, and he had just come in on the train from Los Angeles. He spent months going through every possible program permutation, most of which were better than what he ultimately would have chosen. He was thinking about doing King Kong and all these things that you know would have been great. Instead, he chose long suites from the more prestigious films that really, some were good, but... It really would have been better. We know how to do these things now. But anyway, he was so overshadowed by Sinatra, who showed up minimally for the rehearsal. But what really hurt Max was that, according to Max, the New York Philharmonic treated him, Steiner, with contempt from the time he stood up on the podium at the rehearsal. And according to Max, the cellist refused to take his cello out of its case. He said, it'll be fine, I'll play it tonight. And that was a clear sign that they didn't like him you're from Hollywood, you don't belong here. And the orchestra sort of did the same thing to Bernard Herrmann later, which is strange because he was a New Yorker who had written a lot of concert music played by the New York Philharmonic. But Max received a very hostile reception from the musicians. And then that night of the concert, it was all about Sinatra and the reviews were simply about Sinatra. Max remembered the concert as a a disaster. It wasn't, the attendance was below what they expected, but the reviews weren't terrible. They were insultingly dismissive. You know, they wrote about Sinatra, usually in a snarky way, and then they devoted a couple of paragraphs to Max Steiner. And some, I have to say a few, People who were not the snobs of the time, who were people like now, said Max Steiner is one of the finest practitioners of film music, and we very much hope he returns to play his fine music here. He did get some good reviews. All Max remembered walking off that podium was the insults from the orchestra, the dismissiveness of Sinatra, the ignoring of his music during the concert, and he never conducted another concert like that again. And he wrote in the 60s, film music doesn't belong in the concert hall. They don't want it. And it really hurt him. He was so hurt by it. And, and unfortunately, he was the kind of person who just never got over certain hurts. Yeah, I mean, obviously he did. He continued living. But to the day he died, if you mentioned that to him, that would just bring him such intense pain.
1: A man ahead of his time. Little did he know about how popular film music is now in the concert hall these days.
2: The one nice thing is that the wonderful Charles Gerhardt, an American who spent much of his career in Britain recording film music, Charles, who who was a dear friend, I, I knew him on the Bernard Herrmann book. Sadly, he passed away long before the Steiner Project. But Charles sought out Max and started recording suites of Max's music for Reader's Digest. And some of that music was later released as part of the RCA series of classic film score series. So Max got an inkling that young people cared and were playing his music. And one of the most touching gestures was a surprise for him in 1968. He had championed A young elmer bernstein whom he did not know and elmer bernstein who spoke at max's memorial after his death elmer said that he realized that max was recommending him even though max didn't know elmer but he just max knew that elmer bernstein was a very very gifted young man who should get help well flash forward to 1968 i believe it was 68 or 67 elmer bernstein was conducting the orchestra at the oscars and he decided to open the show with a tribute to max steiner since steiner had done so much for film music So Max was greeted by a suite of, you know, Elmer conducting themes from, I believe it was Gone with the Wind, now Voyager, his Oscar nominated score for Battle Cry and A Summer Place, I believe, are the themes that were played. So there were some nice honors of of Steiner at the end, but nothing like what he should have gotten, you know, nothing like he has today.
1: In your book, it was clear to see that Starner's family life was very eventful at times. How did that affect his musical
2: career? No, Max lived a life of constant turbulence. Bernard Herman later said that he, Herman, needed that kind of a state of turbulence to, to create. Max never said that, and in fact, he understandably complained when he was given seemingly impossible deadlines that he managed to meet. But I have no doubt that Max was the kind of person who did his best work and maybe even needed to have his back up against the wall a little bit. You know, that's not an uncommon creative trait to have a sense of urgency, to have that kind of deadline. And he, he was sometimes writing two scores at the same time and managed to pull them both off extremely well. An example being the films Deep Valley and The Woman in White, both terrific scores written simultaneously. Max was not a homebody. He loved the people he loved genuinely, But he didn't give them the thing that they wanted the most, which was his time. And he tried to buy them things that were substitutes for his presence. Not only did that not work, but those gifts were often very expensive ones and got him further into debt. And it ended tragically with at least one family member. And it certainly contributed to three divorces. Like many composers, like many people in Hollywood, the last marriage was the one that stuck. He found the ideal partner in Leonette Blair, AKA Lee Steiner, after they married a former dancer and family friend, because she had the kind of calm demeanor and selflessness who could kind of devote her life to serving someone who needed to be served, you know, someone who needed emotional support who needed that food or drink brought into the room while he composed all night to quietly support him and understand when he was emotionally absent for a while working. But I think that, and and you asked a wonderful question, Jason, which I'm sort of answering in reverse. I'm answering how his music affected his life and you asked how his life affected his music. I think that Max lived two lives. He lived a life in his head of drama and adventure and romance in the movies that he scored. And he lived a life of enjoying people. And he certainly enjoyed physical love. And yet he too often denied that deepest emotional connection in those first three marriages, let's say, with the lack of being there for the other person, of asking them about how their day was versus talking a lot about his day. It was not intentional, but it it cost him in every way possible. And my book is both, I hope. It's primarily a celebration of someone who hasn't been celebrated enough. I hope it offers details and insights into how his unique process worked. And on another level, it is a cautionary tale for all of us that we have to balance our work and our life, because if we don't, a price will be paid. Something I was thinking about listening to the searches
1: today, this just came into my head, this, and I thought being to be interesting, what, what your opinion would be. If Max Steiner was working in the film music industry today, how would he have coped, particularly in multiple <laughs> cuts and multiple changes of the score and, that, and, the, and the producers, people on, on his back? Would, would, be, would he have been able to cope in the uh,
2: film music industry today? I think Max would have found a way to work. You know, people sometimes ask me that about Herman. I think Herman would have walked away. I think he would have simply said, I can't work like this. I think that Max, he loved scoring film. He didn't need to write a symphony. He didn't need to write an opera. He, in the same way that Steven Sondheim has said that he doesn't write songs, he writes for a character in a story. That's his springboard. I think that Max loved the springboard of story, of mood, of atmosphere, you know, of whatever it is, to be inspired and then to give it his creative all. I think that Max needed that so much that he would have put up with the indignities and the demands of the industry today. And I think, you know, he was a more flexible person than Herman in that, as I mentioned, he would incorporate other themes if he felt it was justified to do so, you know, like either period themes or a song that was, you know, written for the film or something. However, He got a preview of what things were going to be like near the end of his life because he had the opportunity to write for television, Warner TV. Like everybody else, Warner Brothers finally decided if we can't beat television, we better join it. And Warner Brothers started producing TV shows and Max scored some shows like a series called Hawaii and I. Well, a summer place had just happened, which is to say money was rolling in. And there's another thing we haven't talked about. I don't know if you want to talk about the fact that Max plays a large role in in why composers get royalties. I'll briefly say that starting with King Kong in 1933, he fought a 27-year battle joined by many people along the way. But he initiated a 27-year battle to get royalties for composers that did not exist before him. And he's the reason composers get royalties today. Many other people fought that fight, but he initiated it and gathered people together in the 30s and 40s and was honored for it in the 50s. And they won right around the time that Summer Place hit big, around 1960. So that was another great income source because by then television, just at the end of the 50s, TV started buying, they bought the RKO, the archive first. RKO was the first of the studios to sell to television. And so Max was getting royalties that he had fought for for 27 years. And so by the time TV came along and people were saying, we need this Q to be 27 seconds, and we want it in three hours, and give us this and give us that, and we don't care what you think, he could say, I don't need to do this. And he even said in interviews at the time, the music of television is, I love you, uh, hurry up and the hell with you, or something like that. He kind of flippantly wrote, he said there are three kind of moods in television. And he said they wanted like four different moods and 20 seconds of music, who can do that? So he was financially secure enough that he could walk away. So I think that And then forgive this lengthy answer, but I think that faced with what he did today, he would have to do a lot of emotional processing of all the irrational demands that he would get from people. Or let's say the demands that he didn't think were valid, but he'd go through with it and find a way to make it work (laughs) because Max Steiner always found a way to make it work. I'm sure he would. I know, I think I remember reading that
1: about Emma Bernstein's struggle towards the end of his career with the way film music was going with, I think it was the Wild Wild West, and bringing his son to help him score it because he was very frustrated with all the different changes in the film's length and the reshoots and that. And so I wonder if Steiner would have had a similar problem because he was, it was just very rare these days, which is a shame that we have directors saying, here's the film and write like your score is the perfect way yeah. it doesn't happen as much you say this is a shame no,
2: it is and, and i'll say that max was a wonderful collaborator you know i mean he liked people's ideas very much he asked people what they thought but he also had a strong point of view so i think it was a nice you know, marriage if you will where he was open to people's ideas but on some films like at warner's i, I loved finding a letter from him once max was scoring a western once at warner brothers And everybody was busy doing something else. Leo Forbstein, the musical director, the producer of the movie. And Max wrote the entire score without any input from anyone. And I know this because he wrote this in a private letter. And he said, I was really, really worried because the first time everyone was going to hear it was at the preview and they loved it. And they thought it was great. And I found separate Warner Brothers Letters saying, hey, Max, that preview was spectacular. They loved the score. So, you know, I validated his story. But I think it is interesting that they trusted him so much. And Hal Wallace, who was definitely not a hands off guy, he said that sometimes he would just hear a theme from Steiner and not hear anything until it was done. He trusted him so much. Of the film composers today, who do you think is the closest to the style
1: of Max Steiner?
2: Well, I you'll know, forgive the easy answer here, but uh, I think John Williams, in his own brilliant original way, is very much the person who carries on what Steiner did, and that is to write themes for characters, to have a, a clear orchestral voice that is both individual and yet serves the picture 100%, and I think does that in his entirely fresh, brilliant way. But I think both he and Max, I mean, just think of Tara's theme, You know, they would write melodies that we remember away from the film, but totally serve the movie first. And they they have an incredible lyrical sense, uh, sense of melody, a brilliant sense of orchestra, a a great sense of when not to use the music. So of the younger composers, I would say Michael Giacchino, who is a huge Max Steiner fan. I think that the happiest kind of things that Max could do, whether he, I don't know if he'd want to, would be Pixar movies, because they have the kind of emotional range and, and the absolute need for music. I think he he would be a wonderful composer for, uh, for Disney. Max's last happy experience as a film composer was working for Walt Disney. And I mean the Walt Disney. It was one of Walt Disney's last films, a live action film called Those Callaways with Vera Miles and Brian Keith. And it's a lovely film set in the depression and Max wrote a really beautiful heartfelt score for it and there is an, a correspondence that the great archivist James Dark found written to Walt Disney saying Max Steiner has written a beautiful score and there were notes after the preview saying you know this is the first film we've had in a while where people were remembering the music and humming the themes you know in the elevators we were leaving and they were so happy with it that that could have been the beginning of something nice but sadly that was the end of Max's career and and Disney passed away the following year I think Max would have been a great composer for those earlier live action Disney films like 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea and certainly Pollyanna with its Americana quality. Because again, that irony that Max the European has such a great feeling for uh, Americana and American life and for people's emotions, the tenderness of their emotions. There's a a film version of the, The Glass Menagerie with Jane Wyman that it's not shown due to rights issues. It's not a great movie, but Max wrote such a tender score for it that no less than Tennessee Williams, you know, the author of the play, The Glass Menagerie, sent Jack Warner letters saying what he was unhappy about, about changing the ending, giving it a typical movie happy ending that didn't fit. But then he said, the Max Steiner score is absolutely beautiful. And and again, the quote is in my book, but said it it absolutely captures the feeling of the play. So I think Max was really so good at capturing those tender moments, those tender feelings people have in a way. And there are still films like that, so he could do it today.
1: Of all the scores that Steiner wrote, which one to you
2: stands out? Well, I, everyone has their own favourite score for different reasons. Sometimes it's the movie you saw at a certain age. I can only say that for me, the score I go back to most often, as obvious as it is, it's King Kong because not only did it capture my imagination so much as a boy, and it is a almost a, a, a boy's adventure film in a way. But there is so much of a sense in the music, not only does it have great themes and exciting cues, something we haven't really talked about is how Steiner will do these key modulations that go higher and higher and higher, and you just feel like you're flying in the air. I mean, he does that so brilliantly in Kong, but I also think that in the music of Kong, you can hear Max realizing that he is creating something important. That It isn't self-important, but he is so in the moment. And you see it on the page, the way his writing gets bigger and more emphatic. And, and of course, the fate of a studio lay in the success of that film. But I feel his creative juices of, you know, at that time, 44 years, all finally coalescing into one place, into something that he knows is coming together. And, And not that he knows it's great, but that it's working. And the phrase of someone feeling that they're in the zone, that they're absolutely at their apex of creativity, he was so in the zone as he would be many, many other times. That's a personal favorite. And yet, The score for Adventures of Don Juan is as joyous as music can be. And I think the music of scores like Johnny Belinda and The Glass Menagerie are so tender and convey such a delicacy and such an insight into the person that those are special. And I'll just say, quite often as a biographer, I've heard other biographers say that they'll take on a project and discover they don't really like the person that they're writing about, but they're stuck with them. I'm so grateful to have written Max's book because not only has it uh, led to many friendships and many delightful conversations like the one we're having today, Jason, but also because Max was such good company. He was a good guy. He was far from perfect. He had tremendous inadvertent flaws, but he was a good hearted person and he loved people and he loved life. And I feel like I'm a bit more life loving as a result of spending those five or six years with him. Certainly the most challenging. 15 months or so of COVID, I could spend talking about Max and going back into the sound stages of Warner Brothers and RKO, which were thrilling and wonderful places to be through the paperwork and, and all the correspondence that survived. So Max was, it shows that you can be a good human being and a real artist at the same time.
1: After reading your book, I really wish we could have had a Zoom chat with Max Steiner because at the end of the day, he sounds a really nice guy. Even the picture in your book he looks ever so friendly. He shows he had a kind heart there. Yes, There's yes. He really, was a really
2: nice person to talk. Indeed, and and I hope you will permit me to say and I hope you will be able to use I was very lucky that there is one person still with us who really got to know Max very well and that is John Morgan. John Morgan is a composer who reconstructed many of Steiner's scores, things like the first, complete, and only King Kong, and dozens of other Steiner scores. When John was in his 20s, in the 1960s, he sought out Max, who was in the phone book, and just went to meet him. And and Max mentored him, invited him to come over for many, many dinners and nights. And they would talk into the night, taking out these gigantic scores that we've been talking about these pencil sketches that look like the the 10 commandments sometimes (laughs) you know when you open them up and are filled with not only the musical notes but all the scribbles of what's what's happening that day at rko or Warner brothers but max would go over the look at a queue and he'd say what do you want to look at today and john would say well let's look at the the log scene in king kong why did you do this why did you do that and of course this being so meaningful to John, John remembered all of this and took notes of it. So in a way, I didn't get to interview Max Steiner, but John was an incredible repository of very candid, confidential, non, you know, I'm not saying this for the press kind of soundbite talk, but very candid talk of composer to composer, friend to friend about what the problems were, what frustrated him, what he thought was good. And so how fortunate we are that John Morgan sought out max steiner and formed out of nothing but a sincere desire of friendship and a chance to meet him formed that friendship and learned so much and asked so many questions and my book is so much the richer for it and and yes to to your point of how it would have been like to to sit with max i felt so often talking with john like it was having a conversation with max and he wrote back to fans he had correspondence for years with fans in the 30s and 40s if someone took the time to go see a movie in the theatre multiple times and asked about a certain cue like you and I would, Max would give that person much time to write a thorough letter in response with absolute sincerity and just the appreciation of someone who knew that someone out there cared. Excellent. Now, what do you think
1: is Max Steiner's long-term legacy in film music? Max
2: Steiner basically established the grammar, the language, the form of film music. He didn't invent any single part of it, but he took all of these elements together, like leitmotifs, like orchestral color, a sense of drama, a sense of of musical drama, which is such a complex topic. And he established the lexicon, the language of film music that was used in the decades since, and to some degree is still in use. Max would approach a film by determining the key, the pitch of an actor's voice. So on one score, which is not for the general public's knowledge, just for Hugo Friedhoffer, he writes, Miss Davis speaks in the key between E and F. And what he's saying is that he figured out where her voice was on a, on a tonal scale. And then he writes above or below it so that his music is not at the same pitch as her voice. That is how sensitive he was. So Max basically, figured out how to write a film score. And at the dawn of the talkies, sooner than we would have (laughs) expected, by 1932, had established a form that 90 or so years later is still being used. And not only did he establish the form, he wrote many of the greatest scores within that form. Some people just invent something that other people then go on to use and make great things from. He did both. He figured it out and kept evolving and kept changing and also was one of its finest practitioners. So I think his legacy is he gave us the language, the grammar of film music. He made it possible for a Korngold or a Newman or a Herman to come in and say, this is how they're doing it. This is how it's done. I'll put my stamp on it. I'll change it and do this. But Max put the alphabet together. Incidentally, what is said about John
1: Williams being the Max Steiner of his age? I have a book by Emilio Odissino. Apologies if I've mispronounced your name, Emilio, if you're listening. On John Williams, just recently just had a revised edition. There is a chapter in this book about John Williams' music for Rages of the Lost Dark, which Emilio entitles The Return of Max Steiner. <laughs> so as well as you're right, it is, John Williams is the Max Steiner of our age. Oh, it, it, of
2: our age, yes, and it is very much his own great composer. Speaking of John Williams, I was so lucky in the, the wonderful Conrad Pope, a composer, orchestrator, just a wonderful, wonderful person, and has done so much for film music and, and has often worked with John Williams. Conrad joined me for a Max Steiner tribute that we did as a webinar, and it was a thrill that Conrad brought with him a note from John Williams saying, a lot of nice things about max steiner i will quote the end of of those comments this is from john williams speaking of max steiner all of us who practice the craft are deeply in his debt he was an admirable musician and i greatly regret not having met him all the evidence suggests that he was a charming humorous and extremely delightful man and i won't try to say more than john williams (laughs) yes i think john williams says
1: it oh Stephen C. Smith, it's been a real, real pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much for joining us on Talking Soundtracks. I do hope you have enjoyed both parts of my interview with Stephen C. Smith about his book, Music by Max Steiner, the epic life of Hollywood's most influential composer. A link to purchasing the book is on the webpage on the Cinematic Sound Radio website. And if you want to know more about the tracks of music we played on this part of the show, The music playlist is also on the same website, cinematicsound.net I must also mention that the Talking Soundtracks theme was composed by David Cosina. I leave you with music once again from Steiner's all-time classic score for the 1933 film King Kong. The cue is entitled Finale and is performed by the Moscow Symphony Orchestra conducted by William Stromberg. My thanks once again to Stephen C. Smith for joining us on this two-part edition of Talking Soundtracks. And until we meet again, for me, Jason Drury, is take care and happy listening. Thank you for tuning in to the Cinematic Sound Radio Network. I want to thank Tim Burton for providing his voice for all the bumpers and stingers you hear throughout the show and to David Cassina for providing Cinematic Sound Radio's intro music. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, please email us at cinematicsound at yahoo.com. You can find us on social media at Radio on Twitter, at Cinematic Sound on Facebook, and from wherever you're listening to us today, please leave us a five-star rating and a positive review. Reviews help introduce potential new listeners to the show. While you're at it, head over to Tee Public to find yourself a Cinematic Sound Radio t-shirt and support us on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash cinematicsoundradio. And don't forget to check out Cinematic Sound Radio at cinematicsound.net.